Tonight we're continuing in our series entitled, Sucker, the Tricks We Fall For. Hey, here's the reality. We believe in a big, big God. All right, we believe in a big, big God. A miraculous God. We believe in a God that is alive, our Savior, our Messiah. He's not dead. You could go to Israel. You could go to the tomb where his dead body was at. Guess what? It's still not there. And that's what we're celebrating this Sunday. And, he, and, 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 and though we believe in a big, powerful God, here's the reality. God is very real, but the enemy is also real. You do have an enemy. And, and, and this, this enemy of yours, his name is Satan, uh, he has been tricking and deceiving people for thousands and thousands of years. And he's got a lot of tricks up his sleeve. And this series is all about identifying and countering those tricks. Knowing this, that the enemy might have his tricks, but God's got his plans. And greater is he that's in me than he that is in the world. So you can't touch this. Our whole series in a sentence, we like, um, we like to take notes around here just so you know. Lots of notes tonight, so be ready, and we're going to move really fast this evening, so track with me. But, um, but uh, our whole series in a sentence is this. If you, if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. We believe the best something to stand for is actually a someone. It's what we build our entire lives off of. His name is Jesus, and, and, and that's really like building your life on a rock solid foundation. That's what we believe. And so tonight, here's the trick that we're gonna dig into this evening. The trick is Jesus is just a legend. That's the trick we're gonna talk about. Jesus is just a legend. See, what happens so often is that, is that when people hear the name of Jesus, what they'll do is in their mind, you guys ever see that episode of SpongeBob where SpongeBob's in his mind and there's all the file cabinets and stuff's on fire and he's ah. Like when someone says Jesus, that moment happens in our head and we're running through the file cabinets of our mind and then we open this one drawer and we're, okay, and we get to the file labeled myth or labeled, labeled legend and so then what we do is we're like, oh, okay, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, Jesus, I'm going to file it right there. But here's the reality is Jesus is not a legend. The definition of legend, uh, it's, up, it's up on the screens. We have a graphic for it if you want to write this down. Uh, legend is defined like this. A traditional story sometimes popularly regarded as historical, but, but, everyone say but. Look at your neighbor say but. Like while you're looking at him from the neck up, preferably, please. Thank you. <laughs> but unauthenticated, unauthenticated. With Easter coming this, this Sunday, I think it would be great to talk about the authenticated risen Savior. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 14. We're going to read all the way down to verse number 20. Here's what it says. And if Christ has not been raised has not been raised from the dead, then all our preaching is useless. Woo! I'll tell you, I put a lot of time and effort into preaching. It, it, it's, it's, it's not all that I do, but it's some of what I do. And if, if Christ isn't risen, then all of this is useless. David, David, all, all, your, all, your, Instagram, all your Instagram posts where you've been sharing those things, that I've been loving, man, so soft. If you don't follow David Dubin on Instagram, go follow him. Man, he's been posting some incredible... Incredible messages on his instant. But hey, bro, if, if Christ is not resurrected, it's all useless. This is, it's, it's all useless. 
And it goes on, it says, it says, and, and your faith is useless. Maybe you're not a preacher, but you got faith. Well, if Christ isn't resurrected, then your faith, it's useless. And we apostles would be lying about God, for we have said that God has raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no, no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. Anybody thankful that Christ is resurrected and we're not guilty of our sins? Whew. I don't know what your past looks like, but I'll tell you, my BC days were ugly, man. I'm glad that Christ is resurrected. I'm not guilty of my sins. Verse 18, in that case, all all who have died believing in Christ are lost. See, if, if Jesus didn't resurrect it, then all of those who have died are actually completely lost. They've gone to that deep, dark, scary place that the atheists talk about where it's just nothing. It's just darkness. Oh, gosh, that is so terrifying. I, I, I hear people say, like, like, who don't believe in God, they'll be like, I'm not scared of death. I'm like, oh, my if I didn't know Jesus, I would be so scared of death. Like, I'm still a little bit scared of death, even knowing Jesus. Like, if I didn't, oh, good Lord. It says, in that case, all those who have died believing in Christ would be lost. And if our hope, is, and if our hope in Christ is only for this life, if all we have is hope in this life, we, we are more to be pitied than anyone else in the world. If Jesus isn't, isn't resurrected, then we Christians, we should be pitied. We're, you know what he's saying? You know what, like, the verbiage we get here is? It's, it's, man, if Christ isn't resurrected, all of us who call ourselves Christians are actually completely pathetic. But Christ is resurrected. Our last verse, verse 20. But in fact, everyone say the word fact. Christ has been raised from the dead. Somebody say Amen. For you note takers in the place, here, here is our entire sermon in a sentence. I gave you the series in a sentence. Here's your sermon in a sentence tonight. Jesus is legendary, but he is not a legend. Hey, would you pray with me tonight? God, thank you so much that you're in this place and you're already speaking. God, would you show up? Would you speak to us, God? Would you confirm in each and every one of our hearts that which is already true, that you are alive, that you are risen? God, I pray even right now for our Easter services this Sunday. God, we got three services last year. Each one was completely packed out. We saw so many people come to you. We pray, God, go above and beyond this year, more than we have ever asked, imagined, or dreamed of. And, God, um, I've never prayed this before, but I'm going to pray it tonight. God, uh, help the Clippers beat the Warriors in Jesus' name and strengthen that defense. Amen. Amen. I'm a Lakers fan, but, hey, anybody but the Warriors, am I right? Hey, um. So the Ellen Austin was a ship that set sail 1881, 1881 from Liverpool, and it started heading to New York. And uh, uh, who, who's enjoyed the Bermuda Triangle stories thus far? I got another one for you. The Ellen Austin. Um, the Ellen Austin, it set sail in 1881 from Liverpool heading to New York, and it had to travel through the, the northernmost part of the Bermuda Triangle, also known as the Devil's Triangle. Dun, dun, dun. And, and while sailing... To New York, um, the Ellen Austin, under, under Captain Baker, they came across this unidentified ship. And the ship, um, kind of in the distance, it seemed, um, it seemed like kind of in an eerie way to be sailing only under a half sail and almost directionless. Kind of like with, 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 no, um, with no specific course. And so they tried hailing the ship and nothing happened. And um, I don't know, by the way, when I read through this story and I watched a ton of videos on it and I dug deep into the details of the story, 
I couldn't find out what hailing looked like in 1881. Nowadays, it looks like getting on a radio, like, hi, Ellen Austin to unidentified ship, and like they would get it on their radio. Um, on Star Trek, it looked like hailing them is a big, you know, it's a big old screen. And by the way, who's stoked for the rise of Skywalker? Come on, somebody. Palpatine laughed at the end. I got chills. I weeped a little bit. But I was like, what's, how, did they, how did they hail people back in 1881? I don't know. But they did, and there was no response. And so, and so the Ellen Austin and Captain Baker, they, they began to um, kind of try to decide, well, what do we do next? Because the ship is just kind of out here floating around. And, and so when they began to, like, uh, weigh their options, they thought, you know what? This is actually one way that pirates bait people into boarding a ship. And so what they did was they waited for two days and they just surveyed the ship. They just followed the ship. They watched it and it continued for two days straight to just aimlessly float around in the northern part of the Bermuda Triangle. So after the two days, Captain Baker, he took his crew and he went and he boarded the unidentified ship um, all the while on their approach, continuing to hail them. Even when they came on board, they hailed them, hello, anybody on board? And they discovered there wasn't a single soul on the ship. And so they started thinking, well, what, what happened? And so uh, they thought maybe storm, maybe a storm hit the ship and, and um, because the, the lifeboat was missing. So they thought maybe a storm hit the ship. So they began to search for storm damage. There was no storm damage. The, the, the ship was in perfect sailing order. And, and if you're in the middle of a storm, you don't hop on the tiny little uh, uh, lifeboat. You would stay on the secure uh, ship that has no, no issues. It's not sinking. The only time you really get into it, the smaller, way, way, way less uh, strengthened uh, uh, boat is that if, it's, if your boat's going down, you guys all seen Titanic, I'll never let go. And then it's like, get off of my raft, Jack. Jack. Like, <laughs> ironic, but you know. <laughs> Jack's also somewhere at the bottom of the Bermuda Triangle. Um, he's not, but he is in the North Atlantic, which the Bermuda Triangle is in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, but, but, but they thought, okay, okay, so it must have been pirates then. It must have been piracy. But then when they went to the, the bottom part of the ship, they found that there was a massive amount of, of genuine quality liquor and alcohol on the ship, which, well, you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean. They, pirates love them some liquor. But nothing was taken. Literally nothing was out of place. So pirates couldn't have been, piracy couldn't have been the explanation. They thought maybe mutiny. But, but you see, mutiny isn't like, like there's mutiny and then it's like, throw the captain overboard, ah, throw the co-captain overboard, ah, throw the lieutenant overboard, throw the, throw the sergeant overboard, throw the corporal overboard, now throw all the, the deckmen overboard, yeah, and now I'm going to throw myself overboard. <laughs> like, that's not how mutiny works. Mutiny, there would still be someone on the ship, right? And so, so there was nobody on the ship with no explanation. The, the story gets better. So Captain Baker and, and, and the, why am I forgetting? The Ellen Austin, I kept thinking Austin, um, you know, Austin Powers, or, or if you're a wrestling fan, come on, Austin 316. Uh, that's what I kept thinking. Uh, the Ellen Austin decided, you know what we're going to do? Well, finders keepers. We're going to tow this ship back to New York with us. And so they hooked up the tow, and um, Captain Baker threw his best men onto the unidentified ship, and they began to self sail for New York, still in the northern part of the Bermuda Triangle. Out of nowhere, they hit, they hit a storm, and the two ships got separated, the tow having gotten severed. 
And so they, they got separated. When the, after a few days, when the storm died down, uh, the Ellen Austin began its search for the unidentified ship and their crew who was on board the ship. So they find the ship. But just like before, the ship is just floating eerily, directionless. And so what happens is uh, uh, this time immediately they go on board the ship to find not a single soul on board. The next part um, was, was kind of deeper into like digging into this story and, and wasn't 100% authenticated. But, but it says that, that uh, Captain Baker even tried one more time to tow the unidentified ship back to New York with them. And, and for a third time, the same thing happened where they were severed. They were separated. And then having a very small crew on the unidentified ship, when they returned to it, found that once again, it was a ghost ship. No one was on board. The Bermuda Triangle, the Devil's Triangle, again, claiming victims. So week one, we talked about Flight 19, and we talked about the trick called, the trick called Compass Variation. And, and week two, um, we talked about the Mary Celeste and the trick of the, the coral reef breakers that would break apart ships. And so what about the, the Ellen Austin? What's the trick here? What, what's the secret that the Devil's Triangle is hiding? What's the explanation? There isn't one. Nobody knows. No one's even able to guess what the explanations are from a scientific perspective. We have no idea. There's zero details, right? Like, so have fun sleeping tonight, right? You, yeah, you, I've been dealing with this for a week and a half. Like, where'd the crew from the Ellen Austin go in 1881? My goodness, the things I stress about, right? Like, like there's no detail. And, and in the mid, like, here's the thing is, where details are lacking, legends are born. And naturally, legends were born around the Ellen Austin. Some people, said, um, some people said that it was a giant squid that somehow, without damaging the boat, just snatched everybody off of the boat again and again. Another, another theory was ghosts, that ghosts had taken the crew. Another theory, this one's maybe my favorite, um, that aliens actually abducted the crew members. And legend has surrounded the Ellen Austin. And, and so people will then often think, well, isn't it the same with the story of Jesus? That there's so little detail. Like it, it's just a legend. It's a myth that grew and grew and grew. But it is not so with our story of our Messiah. See, there is no room for legend to grow because we have overwhelming amount of details. Jesus is legendary, but he's not a legend. Much of, uh, much of the proof and the evidence that we see are found in the story of Jesus, specifically in the Gospels. If you're taking notes, this is our first point. Write this down. The devil's not in the details. You ever hear that saying, the devil's in the details? This time, the devil's not in the details. God's in the details. There's so many details. There's no way this is a legend. See, details and legends are arch enemies. They're arch enemies. Legends grow over long periods of time, coming often from detailless stories or fables. I propose to you that Jesus, specifically the Gospels, if you don't know what the Gospels are, the Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament. They're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're literally biographies about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And a lot of our conversation tonight is going to be around the Gospels. And, and I propose to you that Jesus' life and the Gospels actually have none of the stuff that legends are made of. So let's talk about some of these details. First, um, 
Uh, let's talk about the specific details. If you're a note taker, go ahead and write that down. I, I, there's going to be points inside of points. I told you lots of note taking tonight. You concrete sequentials and avid students are going to love me. The specific details. When you're telling someone a story or, or, you're, or you're writing a legend, um, the details are vague, not specific. You can't be vague and specific. You know what I'm saying? Like many stories, they start with once upon a time. Or, or some of the best stories, they start with a long time ago in the galaxy far, far away. Like, you know, why? Because those are fables. They're fiction. They're not real. And some people will be like, well, that's kind of like the story of Jesus, right? Like, Jesus was born somewhere during some time at some point in history, right? Like, no, no, no. It's like, where was Jesus born? Uh, you know, it's, it's more like a, it's more like a, 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 a feeling or a fairy tale land. No, no, no. That's not what we get from the story of Jesus. In fact, if you have your Bible, uh, Luke chapter 3 and verse number 1. By the way, the book of Luke, um, written by a doctor, a physician, funded by a very wealthy man who wanted a detailed description of the life of Jesus. Um, the, the, the book of Luke has actually been come, uh, has come to be known as one of the absolute most impre- impressive documents of history in all of antiquity. And, and these, are, these are opinions of non-Christians. Here's what Luke chapter 1 says. Uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3, verse 1. It says, It was now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Who's Tiberius? Well, I don't know, but I'll tell you this. I'll tell you what I do know from both the Bible and extra-biblical sources. We find that this dude, Tiberius, he was, in fact, a Roman empire and he was, in fact, in the 15th year of his reign during the life of Jesus. See, it wasn't, it wasn't once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. No, no. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman Empire. But it gets better. Pontius Pilate was a governor over Judea. Oh, was he? Well, who else was ruling in that time? I'm glad you asked. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. Did Herod have any brothers? Oh, he sure did. Actually, his brother Philip was ruler over Ituria and Tacheritis. Tacheritis sounds like a disease, not a place. <laughs> and then it goes on, Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Like, you know, this, this is the verse in Luke where you just like, you, you're like, okay, let's skip that, get to the good stuff, you know? Why is, why is Luke writing this? Well, Luke is writing this so that we have detailed description that we're not making up a story here. Luke is like, this is real. This happened. Oh, when did it happen? It happened in the 15th year of the rule of Tiberius. That's when it happened. And then you could go to, these are all historically verified facts. We're not talking a galaxy far, far away. We're not talking fairy tale land. We're not talking about Middle Earth or Aslan. We're not talking about Narnia. We're talking about a real place, a real time under real rulers, a detailed. Why did Luke include this? Well, because he was actually, in a way, inviting skeptics, saying, are you skeptical? Maybe you're here tonight and you're skeptical. You're welcome here. We love that you're here. And know this, that even the biblical writers were inviting skeptics, saying, hey, come and scrutinize our story because we got our specific details in place. That's, that's why these verses are in there. Not only were the details specific, they were also instant. Isn't instant stuff great? Like, anybody use an instant pot? Not Instapot. The cranes will kill you if you call it an Instapot. Instant pot. Like, they're so fantastic. Like, 
Why wait 30 minutes to eat when you can eat in 45 seconds? You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and the details we get are actually instant. See, the time, why is this important? Why is it important that we got instant details? Because legends take time to form. See, the, the time that we received the story of Jesus was far too short for any legend to form. Uh, the, the book, 1 Corinthians, where we read our verse out of, it was actually, the book of Corinthians was written less than 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Less than 25 years. And before you think, 25 years, that's, that's a long time, Corey. Like that, a legend could surely, surely a legend could be formed in 25 years. Before you go there, let's just talk about other things that we know in history. Let me ask you this. How do you know about anything in history? Well, let me ask you this. Who's the first president of the United States? How do you know that? You know how you know that? Because somebody wrote it down. And here we are, hundreds of years later, still saying, wow, like somebody wrote that down. I believe it. Right? Let, let, let's go with somebody else, uh, someone who is uh, way older, Alexander the Great. Take a quick inventory in your mind of all the things you know about Alexander the Great. I know you know so much about him. Alexander the Great, you know, conquered conquered the known world by age 30, right? Died by age 32. Um, he, he was tutored by Aristotle. Pretty cool. Uh, he, he named 70 cities, 70 of the cities he conquered. He named them after himself. He named one city after his horse. <laughs> he never lost a single battle in 15 years, Alexander the Great. Never lost a single battle and then in, by, by 330 B.C., before Christ, three, 330 years before Christ, he had conquered the known world. And it was reported that when he conquered the, the last city of the known world, that he stopped and he wept because he felt there was nothing else to do. So how do we know all this? How, how do we have the details about Alexander the Great? Well, well, the details of Alexander the Great, they come to us from two primary sources. They're, they're definitive biographies written by two guys, one of them named Plutarch and one of them named Arian, if you're looking for names for a future kid. Now, get this, get this. The biographies of Plutarch and Arian written about Alexander the Great, they came to us over 400 years after the death of Alexander the Great. Now, please tell me about all the debates you've had in history class about whether or not Alexander the Great was real or great. No, no, because we accept it as historical fact with those biographies, with that information coming to us 400 years after his death. So see how impressive it is that our story of Jesus came only 25 years after now, here's the thing, too. It gets even better because in that same letter, 1 Corinthians, because 1 Corinthians, um, it's not like a, it's not a narrative. See, it's not a, it's telling a story like how the Gospels are. 1 Corinthians is actually a letter. You know how, you, like back in the day in the Stone Age, they used to pass letters in class. Me and Amber used to pass letters. We got shoeboxes full of them. One of those letters that, that uh, Paul had passed was called 1 Corinthians. And in this letter, when he's talking only 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he actually says, and hey, you guys already know because this was all communicated to you immediately after Christ's death. See, there was no room for legend to grow. There wasn't enough time. There was this um, incredible British historian named A.N. Sherwin White from Oxford University who studied the development of legends. And he said a legend like this 
Even two full generations wouldn't be enough time. A generation being considered often about 30 years, a person's, um, uh, a, a full generation being about 30 years. So even two generations wouldn't even come close to enough time to develop a legend like this. So what's your point? My point is Jesus is legendary, but he's not a legend. Our, our, our details came instantly. But not, not only did our details come instantly, they were awkward. They came awkwardly. What's the most awkward moment of your life? Just think about it right now. Don't share it. Nobody wants to know, but I'll share one with you. Um, <laughs> uh, one time, well, so I was a mama's boy. That's not awkward. I am unashamedly a mama's boy. I was a huge mama's boy. My summer mornings consisted of getting out of my bed, going to my mama's room, laying in bed with her, and watching chick flicks. Like some of you guys are like, that's not healthy. Don't judge me. Um, but but well, I was a mama's boy, and, and uh, one time for six months we lived in Colorado, and then this white stuff called snow fell from the sky, and we're like, let's go back to California. Um, but one time we, we had this, uh, this kind of roll-up garage, and then one day I heard the roll-up garage rolling up, and I was like, wait, where's mom? And then I realized mom's leaving. And so I, I panicked and I ran out. I opened the garage door and I caught eyes with my mom who's backing out of the driveway. And it was like that moment because the garage door started closing. It's like, what do I do? So I booked it. I headed for mom. I was like in my pajamas with no shoes on, but I'm jamming. Ooh, ooh. Mom, take me with you. Boom. And I hit the garage door, my feet go above my head, I hit the ground, and the garage door is still closing. I don't know what happened to the sensor. They don't have sensors in Colorado, apparently. I'm getting ready to be decapitated by the garage, so I like shimmy my way out, right? Like, I was not the hero in that story. Another embarrassing story. Um, uh, just a few months back, uh, our, our lawn got flooded at the house uh, right over here where we live, right around the corner. Our lawn got flooded because our sprinklers were on for hours and hours. And our, our neighbor turned it off. And they're like, hey, Corey, you know, you should really check your sprinkler system. Make sure that your sprinkler system is working and everything like that. So I go to the sprinkler system like 14 minutes in, really, realistically, like three and a half hours in. I'm like, this thing's broken and it sucks. I can't do this. It's terrible. I'm going to go watch anime. Like, so I go inside. I'm watching Cowboy Bebop. Amber goes outside. She, <laughs> Cowboy Bebop's a banger. Um, uh, uh, Amber goes and she checks the sprinkler system. Three and a half minutes later, she walks in. She said, I fixed it. I was like, I'm not a man. <laughs> I'm just, like, that's supposed to be the man. Like, I'm not the hero in that story. Here's why the awkward details are important. See, if you're making up a story, you would write yourself as the hero. Right, like you ever hear the saying, you can't make this stuff up. Amber fixed the sprinkler system, not me. Like I hit my head on the freaking garage as it closed. I'm not the hero in these stories. You can't make this stuff up. I propose to you, when it comes to the gospels, you can't make this stuff up. And, and the disciples, the disciples, the ones who wrote the gospels, they didn't even paint themselves as the heroes. In fact, they, they shared all, constantly about all of their failures, all the, way that they, all the ways that they messed up. It was crazy how, how terrible these dudes really were. You're like, who are these guys? Jesus, surely you could have picked better than Peter. Surely you could have picked better than the, like, like what kind of awkward, awkward details are we talking about? Well, you know, the night that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, a guy named Mark who recorded the book of Mark, um, he recorded how, well, when the, when the guards come in there, all the disciples are like, oh, snap, let's run. Like, and then they take off and like, yeah, because that's what a good friend does. Your friend's in danger and you just run, right? Like, 
they weren't even writing themselves as the heroes in the story because they wanted to stay true to the real details of the story. But it gets better and more awkward. As, as Mark turned to run because he was in what was, what was an at-home robe and not an outdoor robe because he came to this little prayer session late, somebody had stepped on the robe and it ripped his robe off and therefore he went running streaking through the Garden of Gethsemane. You can't make this stuff up. It, it, the, the details are, are so awkward, right? Like, like the, the women who discovered the tomb empty. There's two women who discovered the tomb empty Sunday morning, Easter, 2,000 years ago. They walk up and the tomb's empty, and then Jesus is like, hello. And they're like, hi. And one of the ladies are like, so you're the gardener, right? <laughs> That's what happened. They thought that he was the gardener. And then, and then Jesus goes, Mary. And they're like, hi. It's Jesus! And then they run away and go tell the disciples. They go and tell first uh, John and Peter. Like, you can't make this stuff up. So they go and tell John and Peter. And then John and Peter. John then records in the book of John. That's the fourth gospel. He says, when we heard that, that Jesus was resurrected, we got to see Jesus, because you don't miss that. you got to go see resurrected Jesus. So they're like, so let's go. And so John's like, so me and Peter, we ran to the tomb to go see Jesus. And then John says, and also... I outran Peter. Like, he puts that in the story. Like, also, I'm a little bit faster than Peter when it comes to not running your mouth. No, that's Peter. But a foot race, I'll take him out. Like, what? You can't make this stuff up. Why? Why these details? Because doesn't it just sound like the stuff that would happen in everyday life? Well, because it was everyday life. This really happened. It's not a legend. Women found the tomb empty, um, which if they were making up a story, by the way, they wouldn't make up that story. You know that women in that day in first century Palestine, their testimonies were meaningless, nothing. They meant nothing. So when people were to ask, hey, how, who found the tomb empty? They said, oh, two women, one of which had a very sketchy background. People would be like, well, then you have nothing to stand on because the testimonies of women are valueless because women didn't hold societal values in that day. You see, that, that, that's actually huge. Understand this for two reasons. Number one, because you wouldn't make that up. Like, you wouldn't make up that story. You would be like, no, 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 a very prominent businessman who is very respectable, he found the tomb empty with, like, three other very respectable businessmen. Like, that's, that's the story you would make up. No, they didn't want to hide the dirty, awkward details. But also... It's really cool because even in a day and an age when women were suppressed and thought of valueless, God said, no, I value women in their words so much that forever it will be recorded that women found the tomb empty because that's how much I value my daughters. Ladies, you should be excited about that. <clears throat> the details were specific. They were instant. They were awkward. But there was also gory details. Gory details. Every disciple, subtract one, which was John, died, died, and were willing to die for their faith. And John, the poster child of, I got to live. Yeah, well, he got boiled, boiled, and somehow survived. And then he got banned to an island and lived out on this island by himself for the rest of his life. Like, yeah, so that's the story of the disciples. But these same disciples were absolute cowards in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they ran away, one of them butt naked. Like, 
What, so what changed? What changed with them? What changed with Peter specifically? You got Peter that when Jesus is resurrected, when Jesus is arrested and he's being beaten and everything, Peter denies even knowing Jesus three times. Once to a little 12-year-old girl around a campfire and he cusses her out. That's Peter. That's how much of a coward he is. Fast forward, Peter, when Peter then is being beaten, thrown in prison, everything, they're like, shut up, stop talking about Jesus. This was after Jesus raised from the dead. And like, shut up, stop talking about Jesus, stop. And, and Peter's like, I can't, I can't. So you, you'll have to arrest me again. You'll have to beat me again. But if you let me go, I'm going to talk about Jesus. Until one day that he ends up being arrested, tried, and convicted, getting ready to be put to death for his faith. Right? And in his last moments, Peter says, all right, they're like, we're about to crucify you. And Peter says, fine, crucify me, but just one request. Could you crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to die in the same way that Jesus died? By the way, that's where we get the upside down cross. It's not a demonic symbol. It's not antichrist. No, it's actually, uh, Saint, it's, it's been known other than the past 50 years when Hollywood took it. It's been known as St. Peter's Cross. You go back uh, 100, 200 years, you'll actually find uh, Roman Catholic priests walking around with necklaces with an upside-down cross on it. They're like, oh, yeah, look. And we, if we went back in time, we'd be like, oh, my gosh, a demonic symbol. They'd be like, no, 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 St. Peter's Cross because Peter was crucified upside down. That's how willing he was to die. So what changed? What what, what what went from a dude who cussed out a 12-year-old girl because he didn't want to, like, maybe pay a fine for knowing Jesus to be willing to die, literally crucified upside down? Some, some other, uh, other of them, they were, they were boiled alive. Some of them were stoned where they were, they were, a hole was dug, and they were put into the hole neck deep with only their head exposed, and then people threw big rocks at them, killing them. What changed? I'll tell you, like, there had to have been some sort of event. Something had to have happened that gave them so much faith and confidence that they were willing to die. What in the world could it be? I could think of one thing. That dude who just died on Friday is now alive? Whoa. That changes. Because Here, here's the thing. You don't, you don't die. You don't get crucified upside down. You don't get boiled alive. You don't get rocks thrown at you until you're dead for he said, she said, for a, eh, maybe, but maybe not. No, no, they were so utterly convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead that they're willing to die. These are the gory details of our story. But some of the gory details, people will say, People will say, well, no, no, no. See, the disciples, they were just crooks. They were just criminals, and they were telling a fake story in order to manipulate and con people. They're just criminals. A criminologist, uh, who, who, that's someone who studies crime, uh, criminologists say that there are three foundations to all crime. All crime are found around three, three foundations, money, sex, or power. Money. The disciples were all poor, and their message was actually to give away your wealth and be super, super generous. So the money was not there. Sex. Many of the disciples and the writers of the New Testament were actually celibate and never had sex in their whole life. Thank you, God, for not calling me to that. Amen. But their message, they preached a message of, of monogamy, which means only ever having one partner. See, they, they weren't manipulating people into. So, okay, let's move on because the junior hires are very uncomfortable. It wasn't money. It wasn't sex. What about power? What about power? See, well, the disciples, none of them rose to power. They all died for their faith. And then actually their message called for being servants to all. 
Serve people and love people. Don't rule over them. Let The world's going to do that, not us. We're going we're gonna to serve people. We're going to love people. If they were criminals, well, where's the crime? Where was the motive? There was no motive. There was no money, sex, or power in it for them. Why would they, why would they make up that Jesus rose from the dead? Because some people say, oh, they made it up. It's a made-up story. Oh, yeah, well, yeah let's, totally, let's totally lie that Jesus rose from the dead. Why are we going to do that, Peter? Why are we going to do that, John? Because then we'll be killed for our faith. Like, what? No, that's not what happened. It wasn't a crime. It wasn't a made-up story. The reality is, is that every one of them was willing to die for their faith. We don't just have details, though. Point two, we got, we got that, you're like, point two? What? That was like 87 points. Yeah, I told you there's a lot of points tonight. Point two, uh, we don't only have details. We also have evidence, and the evidence is convincing. Write that down. The evidence is convincing. See, legends always lack evidence. Look, I've watched Finding Big, Bigfoot. I want to believe. I do. I really do. Uh, even the Loch Ness Monster, I want to believe in the Loch Ness Monster. And you would say, well, what about the pictures? We got, we got the most famous picture of the Loch Ness Monster. I'm going to throw, throw it up on the screen. There's Nessie right there. Many of you, anyone who's ever Googled Loch Ness Monster, you've seen this picture right here. Now, here's the thing. This most credible picture of the Loch Ness Monster was actually debunked. Turns out big game, <laughs> that, that they actually show this picture to help teach you how to like hold your follow through in basketball. <laughs> it's not true. Uh, turns, out, turns out a big game hunter, a big game hunter was someone, it was a guy named Duke, Duke Wetherill. Um, he, he was a guy who like hunted big game. He, he hunted uh, lions and he hunted uh, rhino and elephants back in the day. And it, it turned out that Someone had paid him to come and find the Loch Ness Monster, and he couldn't. And when he was made fun of for not being able to find the Loch Ness Monster, embarrassed, he made a dummy version of Nessie. He made it out of tin and a toy submarine. And, and then what he did was he went on to convince a, a local physician, a guy named Robert Wilson, to take credit, a local of the Loch, to take credit for taking this picture. It wasn't until 1993 that, uh, that Duke Wetherill's stepson ended up blowing the whistle on the family's big secret and said that the whole picture was a hoax. Oh, the, oh you want the, the physician from the lock who took the picture, the, the reason that they call this picture the surgeon's photograph, he was in on it. We paid him. It was a complete fake, yet another legend being KO'd because the details were debunked. Can I tell you, it's been 2,000 years since Christ resurrected, and many have tried to debunk the resurrection, but none have succeeded. In fact, many have actually got saved in the process of trying to debunk it. One of them, a guy named Lee Strobel. You can write that name down, Lee, L-E-E, Strobel, S-T-R-O-B-E-L. He was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and he wrote a book called The Case for Christ. If you know anybody who's a big skeptic and atheist and agnostic, buy that book for them. It's like $7 on Amazon, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel launched, launched an investigation to disprove the Gospels and got saved in the process, seeing the evidence was so convincing. So what evidence do we have? We have evidence of, first of all, the empty tomb. Sunday morning, they went to the tomb, and not only was this three-ton stone rolled away, but on top of that, the tomb was empty. Jesus' body wasn't there. But people argue, well, Jesus didn't die. Jesus never died from, from this is what people say. They did, in crucifixion, Jesus didn't die. That is appallingly ignorant. 
if, if, you knew, if you know anything about Roman crucifixion, it is incredibly ignorant. Uh, crucifixion was a very public, very brutal way of executing people. And it, it was so brutal, in fact, um, they created a new word to explain the, the pain endured through crucifixion. It's where we get our word excruciating, which literally means in Latin, of the cross, pain of the cross. And so what would happen, though, is that a high-up uh, military official, a Roman official, would be um, charged to supervise the crucifixion. And if, if the person being crucified didn't die, then that Roman official, their life was now forfeit, and they themselves had to be crucified. See, if you're some random Roman official who's like, um, I'm trying to go home to my wife, my kids, trying to get canes on the way and snack tonight. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're not, you're not letting this guy come off the cross alive. So then some people would be like, well, so he faked it, right? So he was on the cross. He did the Nick Fury thing where he drank the potion. It was like, I'm totally dead. Not really. And then he got put into, and then he got put into the tomb. And then in the tomb, somehow having already been flogged, beaten, whipped, his back absolutely ripped apart, a spear stabbed into his side under his rib cage, penetrating not only, uh, not only his liver, but also his heart and like, like all of this, nails, 19-inch iron spikes driven probably not through his hands, but more than likely through his wrists and between both of his feet. Yeah, so, so he totally survived that, and he was faking it. He was actually just taking like a holy nap when he went into the, the tomb. And then when he got in the tomb, he was like, okay, totally clear. And he's like had some like, um, like an, an essential oil diffuser. Like, <laughs> she's like, ooh, is that lavender? Ooh, it's bringing me back to life. Would you look at that? Like... Let's go. And so, so then he gets up and he folds his robes perfectly on the, and then, and then by himself with, with no handles on the inside of this pitch black tomb, he somehow rolled away the three ton stone all by himself. And the two, you know, Roman guards that were outside watching that their lives also would be forfeit if this person were to not like, were to anybody were to come and try to steal the body. Well, then he somehow, I don't know, like karate chopped them and like, keep in mind, like, like, he is wrecked. Like, he is messed up. And then, okay, so cool. So, so he's still good. He didn't die. And then he appears to his disciples. Well, his disciples wouldn't be like, he is risen. The disciples would be like, get a doctor. And like, this guy's about to die. And keep in mind, we're talking about the first century. We, there's no antibiotics. There's no Band-Aids. There's no major hospitals. Just from his wounds, he would have died so soon. But he, there's no way he survived the crucifixion. The fact that he never died terrible argument. The tomb was absolutely empty. Well, then some people will say it was mass hallucination because did you know that over 500 people, over 500 witnesses saw Jesus resurrected? And they'll be like, oh yeah, so, so over 500 people just all had the same hallucination. Some at the same time, some at multiple times. That's crazy, right? Okay, so just let, let me put an end to that argument really quick. Um, how'd you like that dream I had last night? Wasn't it great? Like, no, because like hallucinations and dreams, they're, just, they're individual. They're not corporate. Like, I'm, I'm not like sitting there dreaming and then all of a sudden I like wake up and I'm like, hey, babe, I'm in Hawaii. Jump in on this one. Let's save on airfare. Like, no, like it doesn't work that way, right? So mass hallucination, that doesn't work. Well, then they'll say, this one, this one's so insulting. This one, they're talking about the difference between the Bible and everybody else as far as women were concerned in this day. They'll say, oh, uh, you know, women, they found the tomb empty. And you know how women are with directions. 
I know. No, no, I'm not saying that. This is, this is people who try to explain away the empty tomb. Well, they were just at the wrong grave. You know, it was really bright that, no joke, this is, this, is, this is an explanation. It was really bright that day, and the sun was in their eyes. They couldn't tell they were at the wrong tomb. Like, what? And then, and then Jesus appeared, the, 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 or an angel appears to them, and, and he says, Jesus is not here. So they run and tell the disciples, and people are like, no, no, they just, he didn't, they didn't let him finish the sentence. He was going to say, Jesus is not here. He's actually right over there. Like, he was just at the wrong grave. Like, that is an explanation, but that just presents more problems than, like, it does solve problems. See, because if the enemies of Jesus, as soon as the disciples are like, Jesus is risen, the enemies of Jesus would be like, no, 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 they were at the wrong tomb, come here, look, check it. See, there he is, he's dead, right? Like, he's still in there. See, if you, if you go to your teacher and you say, the dog ate my homework, you're admitting you don't have your homework, right? Like, all the skeptics of that day all of them admitted the empty tomb. They just said things like, the disciples must have stole his body. Like, oh yeah, and that makes perfect sense. Let's steal his body, fake his resurrection. Why? So we can all die, brutal deaths. They had no motive. You know, like, so, 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 so the, 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 the wrong grave is just, like, and here's the thing is that, like, the reality is it's not a legend. They went to the grave and he wasn't there. Why? Because he is risen. And you could still go there, and it's still empty because he's still risen. What other evidence do we have? We have the witnesses. Over, you know, over 500 witnesses saw Jesus resurrected. You know how many witnesses it'll take to send Joe Butt to prison for the rest of your life? Just one. We have over 500 witnesses who saw Jesus resurrected. There are, there are many extra biblical. That means uh, sources outside of the Bible, outside of the Bible, that actually record Jesus' life as well. Even Jesus' enemies. They not only record Jesus' life, but they also record that he was living a miraculous life. They just said, yeah, he's doing a bunch of really miraculous things. It's just not of God. One of which, if you want to write it down, is, is a, a Romano-Jewish historian named Josephus. Josephus. Go and search a guy named Josephus. See, we got, we got details and we got evidence. My last point as the band, as the band heads up is we got prophecy, and, and the prophecy is amazing. Write that down. The prophecy is amazing. I, I got a verse. I don't know, team, if you were able to um, have just the, the words up there, but, but check, out this, um, check out this verse about Jesus right here. I just want to read this Bible verse for you. I don't know if it will be on the screens or not, but here's what it says. Uh, it says, but he was pierced for our rebellion. That's talking about crucifixion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. That beating was the flogging that he endured, the beating that always came before crucifixion. He was whipped so that we could be healed. That's talking about the cat of nine tails that tore open his back. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of all. He was oppressed and treated harshly all the way through his life, especially during the Passion. And the Passion is uh, the time where he began to be beaten, tormented, and crucified for us. All the way through his life, he, he was treated harshly and oppressed. He never said a word. See, Jesus stays silent all the way through his torture, not saying anything that would get him out of the beating and the crucifixion. There was actually times when they said, just tell us you're not God and we'll let you go. But he remained silent. Uh, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep. Uh, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. You know Jesus' very trial was actually illegal. 
See, you couldn't arrest people in the middle of the night, and the way that they tried him was actually illegal. His, the people who, uh, his accusers actually had to take him to multiple people in multiple um, court settings to get him convicted finally. Only, only by mob rule threatening a riot were they able to, uh, to, to get him convicted. Uh, no one cared that he died without descendants. See, Jesus didn't have any biological kids. That his life was cut in, in midstream. See, Jesus died at about 33 years old, which was considered in that day, day and age about halfway through his life. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. See, Jesus never sinned. Not even once did Jesus sin. But he was buried like a criminal. See, crucifixion was specifically an a, uh, uh, execution designed for criminals. He was, he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. This one's incredible. Jesus was actually buried in a man's grave named Joseph of Arimathea. He was a rich member of the Sanhedrin. Isn't that a crazy summary of Jesus' life? Like, it's, it's, it's so detailed, and it's like, like it's, it's, it's almost like you just got the cliff notes of all of Jesus' life. Like, Jesus' life happened. Someone created cliff notes um, after he was born, after he lived, after he died, after he resurrected. Someone created these cliff notes, right? But what if I told you that this was written by a guy named Isaiah over 700 years before Jesus was ever born? See, 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah called eight ball corner pocket multiple times. Only it, wasn't, seven, it was un, wasn't until 700 years later that anyone was able to pick up the stick, hit the cue ball. And oh, by the way, he wasn't the one who was able to hit the cue ball. No, no, no. You see, it's impossible. It's impossible. And there's over, over 300 messianic prophecies about Jesus. Over 300. But let's really quick, just because we're talking about the prophecy is amazing. Let's dig into just eight. Just eight. And, and what, let's do this. To make it fair, let's dig into eight prophecies Jesus would have had no control over. We have a graphic. It might take a moment for you guys to write it down. Maybe take a picture of this. Um, here's the eight. Uh, he was, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah was to betray, be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Messiah's clothes would be gambled away. The Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. The Messiah's bones would not be broken. That's crazy. He went through all this flogging, the crucifixion, everything, but his bones weren't broken upon inspection of his body. The Messiah would be born in the tribe of Judah. That happened. Messiah would be called out from Egypt. That happened. And the Messiah would be buried in a rich man's grave. Eight. So taken from a, a guy's book, um, a guy named Josh McDowell, he wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And uh, this, this, uh, this statistic, this equation's been confirmed by multiple mathematicians. He said that just of eight, even these eight prophecies about Jesus, that it would be the probability of someone fulfilling these would be one in 10E17 is what your calculator would say if you tried to put it in. That is one in 100 trillion. That's what this number looks like. <clears throat> if you're like me, you're convinced that um, that math is the devil, and you hate math. And when that, that number popped up on the screen, you just got stressed. If you're like me, you're more of a visual learner. Okay, so let me give you a visual on what this looks like in real life. Take the state of Texas. If you've never been to Texas, it's massive. Texas is over double the size of the entire country of Iraq. 
That's how massive Texas is. One time I was on tour with my band. I, I, I fell asleep, looked, looked at the highway, fell asleep, woke up six hours later. It looked like we were still on the same highway. Texas is massive. This number, one in 100 quadrillion, is something like this. You take quarters and, and, and you cover the face of Texas about knee high, about two feet high in quarters. And then you take one red quarter. You just paint one quarter red, and then you just take that quarter and you throw it out there somewhere in the middle of Texas. You can have that quarter, man. Every time you look at that red quarter, just reminded, one in 100 quadrillion. It gets better. Next, what you do is you find someone and you blindfold them and you send them out into the knee-high quarters. That would be a really cool sound. It's falling everywhere. And then out of, like, randomly, they have to reach out. They have to grab a quarter in the two-foot-high two stack of quarters all the way across the face of Texas. And the likelihood of that being the red quarter is the likelihood of anybody fulfilling just eight of the prophecies. We have over 300 that Jesus fulfilled. Jesus is legendary, but he's not a legend. We have incredible prophecy that is so convincing. We got details, we got evidence, we got prophecy. As I close tonight, you might be like, well, or like, why is this even important? Why is any of this even important? Like, what? We, just, we just talked 35 minutes about, like, fun facts and details about Jesus. And yeah, you're kind of cool, but what, like, what does it matter? Well, because for one, if you've never been talked into your faith, you could definitely be talked out of your faith. And one day you might get to high school or college and someone's going to give you quote unquote facts and you're going to be like, oh yeah, because you never had that type of facts that's just like, oh, my faith is not blind. No, no, no. It is miraculous. It is so solid. There's so many facts and detail and evidence. Man, I'll tell you, like, you can't convince me otherwise. That's number one. But number two, if, if the enemy can convince you that Jesus is a legend and God is not real, you'll believe the alternative. And what's the alternative? Well, it's pretty much what you learn in school right now. You're just King Kong's great, 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 great grandkid. Right? Like, by the way, we're one of the last countries on the entire planet that's still teach, teaching Darwin's theory, keyword, theory of evolution. Why? Why are we one of the last countries in all of the world teaching this theory? Oh, you know why? Because there's so little details and it's been disproven so many times and there's so many missing links. Not like our story, not like Jesus' story that's so detailed and so much evidence and it's so convincing and there are no missing links. And yet we're teaching this at school. Well, yeah, so basically what we're doing is we're teaching people you are a no one. You're a nobody. You're no one you came from nothing, and you're going nowhere. And then, then they're like, just, just imagine, how would people live if they were convinced that they were no one who came from nothing and who were going nowhere? How would they live? How would the world look? Probably kind of like it does right now. When you tell people, you're, you're, you're nothing. You're just an animal, and you have no value. And then people start treating people like they have no value, and we're all shocked. <gasps> my gosh you turn on the news like how is this possible well we're telling people that they're no one who came from nothing and they're going nowhere can I tell you tonight 
You are not a no one. You are the daughter of a king. You are the son of the almighty God. You didn't come from nothing. You were created in the image of almighty, all-powerful God. He spoke you into existence. And you're not going nowhere. Are you kidding? You will live forever. It's just in a place called hell or a place called heaven. And the, the, the deal maker or the deal breaker in where you spend eternity is all about this man named Jesus. And what do you believe about him? Do you believe that he's a legend or do you believe that he's legendary? Look, you don't, like we're not here saying you have to have blind faith, drink the Jesus juice. Like, no, that's not what we're saying. We're saying we have a faith where we believe God no matter what, but man, we've got details and we've got evidence and we've got prophecy. And it's so overwhelming that nothing could shake us. Nothing can move us. No argument could come that would convince me otherwise. The earth is actually really old. Okay, whatever. No, the earth is really young. I don't know. Like evolution, real or not real. I definitely believe in adaptation if that's what you want to call evolution. Okay, sure. Like there's nothing that can convince us otherwise but all of it everything why is it so important because you're not a no one who came from nothing that's going nowhere no you're someone who God loves so much that he incredibly magnificently miraculously ma mathematically impossible he sent his son Jesus to die for you and to die for me, to die for our sins. We messed up, you and me. He didn't. He never sinned. And yet he came and he died a criminal's death on the cross so that we could spend eternity with him. Maybe your whole life you've denied God because you didn't have the evidence. And now tonight, in light of this convincing evidence, you would say, I want to give my life to God. Maybe, maybe you're someone who's walked away from God and, and once you were serving him, but, but since then you've kind of turned your back and you've been doing your own thing because, you know, you weren't solid in your faith because it was always just kind of like, well, in kids' church I learned this and that. And Father Abraham had many sons and VeggieTales rocked, right? But now I'm like a little bit older and I don't see the evidence and the details. And because my faith wasn't strengthened by evidence and details, I've kind of wandered away. But you know what? I'm hearing this and I want to come back. If that's you, you're going to have the opportunity in just a moment. Would you pray with me tonight? God, thank you so much for who you are. and God, thank you that there is such convincing real evidence. The details are, are incredible. The prophecy, it blows us away. How? How is that possible that Jesus walked out and found that red quarter? It's not possible. It's impossible. But that's who you are. You're an impossible God. Pray tonight, God, soften our hearts. Let us lean into you. With every eye closed, with every head bowed, if that's you, and, and maybe you're here tonight and you would say, yeah, Corey, that's me. I've denied God for so long because I just thought there wasn't proof. And I'm a proof type of person. I want the evidence. I'll believe it when I see it. And man, tonight I've seen it. And tonight I, I, was, I was skeptical, but I want to give my life to God. Or maybe you're here and you've walked away from God. And you're like, no, this is a moment where my faith is being reignited. I want to come back home to God. If that's you, either one of those, I want to pray for you. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to respond in a really simple way. 
I'm going to count to three. When I get to three, I just want you to lift your hand up. Just raise your hand up. I only ask you to respond on the outside because I believe when we do, when we respond on the outside, it solidifies it, what the decision we're making on the inside. It makes it real in our hearts, our minds, and our lives. So if that's you, when I get to three, this is your moment. This is your time. Tomorrow's not promised to anyone. If you want, if you want to make that decision and say, I believe in Jesus, I give my life to Jesus, this is your moment. When I get to three, you raise your hand. One, tonight's your night. Two, don't hesitate. Three, all over this place. Raise your hand. Man, hands going up everywhere. Anybody else? Anybody else? Man, to the skeptic in the room, there's no shame in saying, man, I think I might have been wrong. I think I might have been wrong. No one's looking around. Come on, raise your hand up high. Just hold it there for a second. Keep, it, keep your hand up just for a second. I want to talk to a person in the room who you're still skeptical. And you're like, I don't want to raise my hand. I don't believe it. I'm going to tell you the same thing that I heard at 15 years old when I gave my life to Jesus. Take a chance on Jesus. What do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? People will ask me sometimes, well, Corey, um, what if you're wrong? Well, if I'm wrong... Then I lived a, a pretty good life and I encouraged some people and I loved some people. And then we both end up going to the same exact place, a deep, dark nothingness. But then I'll turn around and I'll ask that same person, but what if you're wrong? Skeptic in the room, atheist in the room, what if you're wrong? Take a chance on Jesus right now. This is your moment. This is your time. Amen. You can put your hands down. Hey, we're going to pray together right now. And, and uh... Maybe you've never prayed. This is just talking to God, literally. The Bible says, um, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that in an impossible way, he rose from the dead and you'll be saved. We're just declaring, this is what I believe about Jesus. And yes, in those words, in that moment, as you wrap your heart around those words and you believe them with everything in you, you'll be saved. That's what this moment is. Don't, don't downplay it. Don't think it's a small moment. It's the best decision you'll make with your life. Since we're a family, we're all gonna pray together. So right out loud, right after me, would you repeat these words? Say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I know you're a savior. Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins and you rose from the dead. So tonight, I give you my heart, I give you my life, I give you everything. And from this day forward, I'm gonna follow you. No looking back and no turning back. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, can we welcome people into God's family right now? Hey, with no one distracting anyone, would you stand to your feet? Would you head to the front? Man, typically in this moment, we have, I have something I share with you about like, hey, would you reflect on this? Would you think about this? But hey, in this moment right here, as we worship Jesus, I pray that you will worship with a new sense of confidence that he is risen that you would take this time to connect with your Savior that is not dead, but is so very alive. Man, in this moment right here, right now, the Bible says that wherever two or more are gathered, that, that God is in that place. God is right here, right now. And in this moment, as we sing these confident words, man, would you just worship God with such confidence, knowing it's not just blind faith. Man, we serve a real, legitimate God, a risen Savior. Amen. Let's worship God tonight.